Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. So I feel like I've been a broken record the last several episodes, uh, always apologizing for missing weeks and having gaps in between episodes. But today I can finally reveal why I've been so busy lately. I'm officially honored to be a member of the first ever TED residency program. At least I believe it's official today. I think they were supposed to uh, put up the announcement this morning. I'm sure most of you know about TED Talks and the amazing TED organization. So beginning last week and continuing through the summer, I will be producing the podcast out of TED's offices in Soho here in New York City. It's only been a week so far, but I can confirm that the TED organization is indeed amazing. I've met some amazing people. Uh, Shout out to my fellow TED residents who may be listening. And already, after only one week, I've made connections and put out feelers to a bunch of people that I wouldn't have had access to before working at TED. As you can imagine, there's lots of people at TED that have been involved in various aspects of internet history. So expect a bunch of amazing new interviews coming all this summer. And today's episode is actually the first interview that I've conducted at TED's facilities. We're going to be talking to the great Rafat Ali. I can't be sure about this exactly, but I would hazard to say that Rafat is possibly patient zero when it comes to taking a one-man blog and turning it into a real 21st century media company. Before the Huffington Post, before TechCrunch even, Rafat founded paid content all the way back in 2002. He later sold it to the Guardian Media Group in 2008, and today... Rafat is the CEO of Skift.com, a media vertical in the travel industry space. Rafat's story is so amazing to me. It's an immigrant story, an accidental entrepreneur's story, and basically it's the firsthand story of how blogging morphed into quote-unquote professional modern digital media as we know it today. So please enjoy this conversation with the great Rafat Ali. Rafat Ali, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm a huge fan of the, of the podcast, and uh, I'm so glad to be here. It's getting easier when, when now I'm talking to people that have actually listened to the show, so you know the format a little bit. Yeah, I found out about it, I'm going to say, a few months ago, and I got so excited because I started tweeting about it, and I said, mm-hmm. holy shit, this is the best podcast I've ever heard, only because I grew up in a bunch of these in this phase, mm-hmm. plus the fact that obviously a bunch of these people I know. Right, right. Well, so then, since you know the format, we like to start a little bit with with how you got in to to what you did in your career. You went to you went to college originally in computer engineering, but you um, I read that you sort of got disillusioned or bored with it. Yeah, uh, this was back in India. Nineteen ninety six is when I finished. Early days of of, of internet, uh, certainly in India. And I, I couldn't force... This was back when developers weren't the rock stars that they are today. Mm-hmm. This was coder sitting behind a desk coding. I just didn't see myself doing that. I lost interest uh, really two years into my um, degree. Mm-hmm. And 
then I started reading a lot about advertising. Somehow I met this copywriter uh, who came to our small town and said, holy shit, this is, this is exciting. Like, this is where the action is. And I went to the university library back in those days, internet, you couldn't really just go anywhere and find information. Can, so, I, can I stop you right there? Because I haven't had the chance to ask um, about this. So this is the mid-90s. This is 1994. What, just generally, you don't have to, this could be a whole other talk, but right. what was internet, internet penetration like in India in Nothing, the 90s? zero. I was doing computer engineering, mm -hmm. where out of the four years of, and this is a small, smaller college compared to like some of the bigger, mm -hmm. more well-known colleges in India. Um, in those four years, our, our dean of the college took us to a government IT um, office and, sh and said, this is the internet. Mm. He pointed to a computer and said, this is happening, this is internet. We knew everything there was to know about, about the architecture of the internet because right. we, we read that was all part of the course. What the network architecture was and mainframes, all this stuff we knew. We were doing programming on C and Unix and all kinds of other stuff we were doing. Uh, we were never connected. So it was all theoretical mm -hmm. until then. So the, I didn't see the promise until much later. So then your actual first, you personally using the internet is just at school um, and there's no ability to, to, obviously on your phone, but at home access the internet. No, nothing. We didn't have, no, I didn't use internet until I'm going to say 97. Okay. Uh, the first time it was a Lynx browser. Um, 96, 97, Lynx browser. Uh, and I started learning tons about advertising just by, you know, the, that was the text browser, if you mm -hmm. remember. Um, right, uh, we've had... Uh, and there was a very slow dial-up in India, like in a corner of India, imagine. Yeah. Uh, like you would wait minutes and minutes for some, even a text thing to load up. Mm -hmm. And so, but I read a lot and I had access to a free printer for whatever reason. So I used to print out a lot of stuff and read and uh -huh. printouts. Um, so, yeah, that's how I got started. So, but, so then back to the story then... You got bored with it. You got interested in advertising. Advertising. I've read tons about advertising, came out of school, started working at a PR agency thinking that advertising and PR are the same thing, which, you know, obviously they're not, um, they have a lot of connection, just mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. the same thing. Um, and uh, there's this trade magazine in India, which is called A&M, which was the ad age of India, that I really liked. It was the only trade magazine. I emailed, uh, not emailed, I wrote I typed a letter to the editor, uh, giving him all the reasons why he should hire me. I had no background in writing. I had no background in uh, advertising at all. Um, he laughed. He, he sent me a, a, a letter back where essentially the import of the letter was, uh, you're crazy, but please come in and let's talk. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I went and met him, and he couldn't believe I wrote that letter. He said, are you sure you wrote this letter? Uh, I said, yes, I did. And so anyway, he hired me and I started writing about, um, actually started sub-editing, which essentially was your editing of other people's copy. That's how you learn initially. Copy editing. Back, yes. Yeah. Um, back in the days. I mean, these days it's sort of an alien thing right. in media organizations, yeah. but it, it is what you did. And then the first India, uh, the first internet conference happened in India. This is in Delhi in mm -hmm. 1997. Alan Meckler, who used to run Meckler Media, who's now an investor in Skift, who I've known for a long time now, it was his company mm -hmm. back when like Meckler Media, whatever it was called, was right. big. So he brought the conference to Delhi. It was the first internet conference. The guy who used to write, 
about tech companies for the magazine was out sick that day uh, that week mm -hmm. I remember very clearly so my editor said hey Rafa didn't you do computer engineering you know something about this internet thing go see what this is and so I went and that's I met all these and they brought in speakers from US because you know US was where it was all these speakers from US and they also gave a demonstration of high-speed internet this mm -hmm. is what T1 or whatever mm -hmm. it's called I forget what it was called broadband I don't think it was called broadband at that point and I said holy shit this is it and um, and then I started thinking and so I did some stories out of it and then I started covering internet advertising and marketing for the magazine there were some early um, companies that were started in India portals back then when, mm -hmm. when portals were big local portals and I interviewed those people did stories and then that kind of stuff I started writing about internet advertising in US mm -hmm sort of reading from five different sources and creating a story for uh, for the magazine. And then I realized, well, the action is in U.S., so let's figure out a way to get to U.S. Um, journalism seemed, to the coming to study journalism was the way it seemed that would be the way for me to come to U.S. So I applied to five different schools for new media, early, early days of new media programs at these J schools in U.S. Um, I applied to five, got rejected by four, and the one that accepted me, which was Indiana University, also gave me a Knight Fellowship, hmm. which was the only re way I could afford to come to U.S. My dad was an academic, didn't really have tons of money. Uh, so um, so th I guess I got very lucky that way. So you got your master's in Bloomington. Bloomington, Indiana. Yeah. I finished in three semesters. In hindsight, I probably should have taken a, a little bit more time. I didn't. Uh -huh. I should have had more U.S. college life experience, if you will. But I was like the diligent immigrant who wanted to finish as quick as possible. <laughs> well, yeah. and also uh, because you're interested in doing journalism around the Internet and the timing is lining up that the Internet is starting to enter the bubbles busting phase was there some yeah, sort of sense you, you've got to get to where it's happening before it's over or something like that well i mean i came here in 19 in the fall of 99 there was no indication i guess not from my naive perspective mm -hmm. then that it was going right. to burst right, i was right. not reading the economics the sure. underpinnings of it i was still a young kid um but what the i can and i can come to the where blogs intersect with my life mm -hmm. what happened it's a very 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 clear yeah uh, specific day it happened is that before you come to new york or after you were with inside no this is in indiana oh, okay, in okay. Oh, tell, tell that story then please so i'm um so i'm studying this new media journalism mm -hmm. i i was the instructor as well to teach undergrads except, uh, web writing 101 Netscape Navigator back in the days used to create websites using Netscape. Dreamweaver hadn't launched yet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, we used to, the where I used to live in the apartment, uh, we used to subscribe to Chicago Tribune because mm -hmm. Chicago Tribune was the nearest big city town. In, um, Indianapolis Star was kind of crap. Uh, this print newspaper. And I was in midday, of, I forget what exact time, but it was during the day I was lying down on the, on the couch reading the newspaper and I started reading this article by this woman called Julia Heller. Julia Heller uh, was a columnist for Chicago Tribune. If I'm not mistaken, she's still there. but She, she writes arts and stuff. Uh, but I could be mistaken in that part. She wrote about this thing called, um, I think the headline was, I've seen the future and it's called weblogs. 
and I started reading it. And I remember literally like stand like sitting up and saying, holy shit, what is this? Mm. And um, I didn't have internet at my at our house, but there was um, labs that you could mm-hmm. go to and access the internet. And so I went to the lab and started like typing all these names that were in there. Scripting, Dave Weiner's Dave Weiner, thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you remember who else they mentioned? They mentioned a bunch of them. Yeah. Um, Cameron, I'm forgetting his last name. Mm-hmm. He was in there. But it was called weblogs. But like blogs weren't right, even right. in the terminology. Right. It, was, it was called weblogs. And this was a few months into me coming to U.S., and so I th- this was a great way to journal my journey mm. as an as a uh, as a foreigner in a country where everything is new to me. It's fascinating. How do I document it? Um, and I started a blog. Uh, it was an anonymous blog. It's interesting. And I was thinking about it this morning. Why did I have it anonymous? Mm. The reason I had it anonymous because having come from India, where you're not used to expressing yourself so freely, it felt odd to me that I would pour my inner secrets or whatever I was doing with my real name on a public forum. Mm-hmm. I think that's the reason why. Yeah. I haven't thought about it. This is the first time I'm actually thinking about why I had it anonymous. And I started writing about it. And back in those days, I think I was like maybe among the few first hundred people that started using blogger.com. Mm. Uh, very early, because Blogger had just launched right. uh, when I started the blog. And I had known web design because I was teaching that um, so it was attractive looking blog back in the in the days um, chronicling my journey in a small town in the US as a as as a you know as an Indian guy mm-hmm. and so that somehow struck nerve with a lot of people and back in those days you used to be able to go on the homepage of blogger.com and mm-hmm. see whose site has been updated mm. they used to have a running list right. of here are the blogs that have been updated so people started coming through that way right and it just built an audience, like people from New Zealand. I remember a guy from New Zealand who used to email me through the anonymous form. Yeah, yeah. That kind of stuff. I used to, there was an anonymous form you could actually send an email to me through. So um, it it ended up being, I guess, a bit too personal. Um, and I realized I have to come out and actually hunt for a job. Uh-huh. So I don't think I want something person so personal and right. raw out there for my prospective candidates to that's interesting to me because you're saying that what attracted you to blogging was not see you would assume oh blogging you can express yourself you can i can put my personal life online and you're saying the exact opposite you're saying you're a little reticent about that so when you when you first read that article i mean it's certainly changed i've changed since changed right but but so my question though is when you did first read that article about blogging what was it that struck you like what was the aha this is this is exciting stuff what did you want to do with it i said this is an easy I don't know if I, that's what exactly in those terms, publishing tool mm. that I can marry my journalism and writing skills that I was learning, mm-hmm. my design skills. Because if you remember early on, the early adopters of bloggers blogging was the design people, the, mm-hmm. the internet design people. Mm-hmm. And I was close to that community. Now, not that I was a designer, but because I was creating websites. Yeah. Um, that was the community that I identified with. So it was a right mix of writing and design is what I said. And so in school, 
there was a class where we had to suggest research papers around different topics and you know anthropological topics whatever it was um, my first topic was a history of weblogs and why I wrote this whole um, summary paper on uh, a way to frame how to look at weblogs and what they represent turned out all my premises in that article are absolutely proved wrong down the years <laughs> down the line I had like weblogs are elitist and here's why mm -hmm. and it's just this whole theory of mm -hmm. it and it turned out that was like the first research paper ever done on weblogs this mm -hmm. is uh, I'm gonna say early 2000 mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you know that's my history with blogs my my history with blog was, was personal right yeah and so I finished school and um, the first thing I did was come to New York which for my classmates in Indiana was like why are you going to New York that's where people get mugged like this mm -hmm. whole small town Indiana yeah, kids who yeah. were going to school uh, and I said well that's the only place I know my friends back from India have come and this is the Y2K boom if you remember yeah. it's a lot of software yeah. so a lot of my colleagues that I went to college with back in India came to US in that Y2K boom so some bunch of them came and lived uh, were actually living in a house in New Jersey Wayne, New Jersey which is like an hour inside mm -hmm. and so I lived with them for six months hunting for jobs um, and um, Inside.com, which you may remember, very few people remember. I that. actually want you to just pause here for a second because it is one of those sites that I do remember but has gone down the memory hole. Yeah. So tell me, before we talk about you joining, just give us an outline of what Inside.com was, who started it, and what they were trying to yeah, do. Yeah, it was a um, Michael Hershon and... Jeez, um, what's that? Card Anderson. Mm. How do I not know that? Mm -hmm. um, how do I not remember it? They started what... The easiest way to think about it, it was the East Coast competitor to Variety, mm -hmm. covering uh, media, entertainment, publishing, internet. Um, huge hype. Mm -hmm. Fred Wilson funded it. Mm -hmm. A bunch mm -hmm. of other people funded it. Uh, and uh, they also had a magazine. The magazine broke the Segway story. Mm -hmm. Segway, if you remember, was such a huge hype. Mm -hmm. Inside Magazine broke that story. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it was really, really, really like it went up in 18 months. It went from from total hype to completely out of business. Right. Super, super short life. Super short life. I was there for about 10, like half of its life. Uh -huh. And I was just an, so they hired me as an intern. Uh -huh. I I had started a, um, my personal blog, Rafa.org, and was starting Romanesco-like was, was aggregating links from right. the media. So I emailed them for an internship, and they hired me for, I still remember, $6 an hour, three days a week. Mm -hmm. uh, they, had that, they had that need. We were still in the old building where today is the Martha Stewart building, all the way up on 11th Avenue. Um, David Carr was there. Like, storied people mm -hmm. were there. Um, David Carr was there. I remember I was the intern on this side of the bullpen. David Carr was on the other side. By that time, he was still, you know, he was very well known. Um, Less Malone until he hit New York Times, but still. And I remember learning so much from him just by overhearing over the bullpen how much he harassed people on the phone. <laughs> to, yeah. to like, If he didn't get an answer this way, he would come back at it again this way or that way or that way. So I learned one thing that the biggest thing I learned from him just overhearing him was how not to be afraid when talking to people, uh -huh. sources, yeah. as a journalist. And he, you know, he would be talking to the biggest of big, John Malone, yeah. Barry Diller, all these people. 
and yet he would have no fear of, of like you know asking them questions the hard questions so I think that's the biggest thing I learned even though he probably doesn't know that I you know obviously now he doesn't but right. he didn't know that I learned all that from him mm-hmm. which was just asking the hard questions not being afraid of asking the hard questions um, so that went down and um, we so you, you, you intern there but are you doing any reporting on media so I started doing so what happened was blo- so 9-11 happened uh-huh. um, blogs started becoming big these guys knew that uh, the editors there knew that I knew this thing called blogging. Um, so he said, Rama, why don't you write about blogging? Metafilter had just started coming up, if you remember. So I did a whole long story on the on, on Metafilter. Mm-hmm. I did a big story on Slashdot. It was the most definitive story ever done at that point on Slashdot. You know, and also because um, the, the 2000 election was huge for blogging taking off, yes. too, because you had things like Josh Marshall and Correct. stuff coming out of that. So Andrew was, Sullivan had started. I exactly. wrote a story about yeah. Andrew Sullivan's business model. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... And Slashdot, just to go back to a second, didn't consider itself a blog, but everybody started considering itself a blog because it was pre-blog. Right. Um, so I was doing stories on them, and we got bought by um, Prime Media, which was Steve Brill. Steve Brill. So Steve Brill um, still claims that I he discovered me, which I actually gave him credit for. Mm-hmm. Um, he hired me from an intern to full time. Um, we did a bun- They did a bunch of layoffs. But I got hired full-time because I was being paid so little that it didn't really matter. They barely noticed you they on the They barely role, yeah. noticed me. <laughs> so I got hired full-time. And uh, that started my career as a journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he can legitimately claim that's actually true. And then it shut down. Like, September 11th hit. We were, gonna, we were going south. And a month later, it shut down. I sent an email to Jason Calacanis, Silicon Alley reporter, reporter. magazine mm-hmm. of, of fame. Magazine had just shut down. A couple of months before Inside.com shut down, I, I saw a job listing on Silicon Alley Daily, the news, the newsletter they had. I somehow had the foresight of emailing him the second we found out that it was closing. Um, Inside.com was closing, saying, and we had interacted on email a little bit because I was covering some of the stories and he was reading it and he sent me a note saying, great story, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I said, hey, I saw there was a job listing a while ago. Is it still open? I would love to come and um, chat. And he says, come in. So I met him, and we had a very frank discussion. I forget exactly, but I remember saying to him, hire me. If you don't like me, fire me in two months. He emailed me like an hour later saying, can you start Monday? Mm -hmm. So like literally... On Friday, I remember I went to Inside.com. We were all gathering our stuff. Everybody else was crying, but I already had a second job to start on Monday. I felt very lucky. But um, everybody was saying, Robert, how did you get a job so quick? They said, I just emailed somebody. Uh, That's what happened. And then I was there um, with Jason. This was the dying days of Silicon Alley. Mm -hmm. All I was covering was this company laid off Mm -hmm. this many people. I was reading, like everybody else, Fuck Company was the Mm -hmm. site everybody Mm -hmm. read. Yeah. we had a famous party uh, at McDonald's. Mm. I don't know if you remember some of these. Um, the guy who started Meetup.com, Scott Heifenberg, right. he worked at McDonald's. I don't know if you know the whole I story. Did not, no. He worked at McDonald's as he's like the story was. I sold my company for hundreds of millions, and now I'm working at, mm-hmm. at McDonald's. Mm-hmm. Essentially, to show the bust and how right. bad it became. Um, Silicon Alley Reporter was was known for throwing wild parties during right. the first internet war. Right. 
one of the parties that we did during the bust was at McDonald's. Mm-hmm. We took over McDonald's up on, I think, 9th Avenue and 30-something. Mm-hmm. And um, and that was the party. Like, the idea was these, this is the new reality, the frugal reality. Let's, let's, let's dip our toe into that a little bit because, again, you're the... I've said over email, you're the first person that I've spoken to that can go a little deeper into this era. Um, just, at, just as an example, you know, my first company started in 98 and we actually grew into the bust. But when I did my second company, um, 2002, uh, the very first engineer I hired, who I won't name because I don't know, but um, <laughs> he went on to basically build Netflix streaming. That, and I hired him over Craigslist hourly. So in 2002, that's the quality of talent that was yeah. unemployed. So give me your impression of those days, at least here in New York. It was depressing. Yeah. Because it was September 11th, compounded with the bust that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, it was everybody, everybody, all, it was a lot of um, companies saying, a big media company saying, look, this is what we said was like, this is why we didn't rush into the whole internet thing. Um, they felt it was a fad and it was over good. We can go back to the way yes, things were. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, meanwhile, blogs were sort of coming from, you know, from nowhere mm-hmm. into becoming a more bigger part of the conversation, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, especially the elections and then post September 11th, a lot of stuff happened, which people started reading and it became a bigger part of the media consciousness in general or, or you know, the national consciousness in general. Um, I was already blogging for like three years at that point. And so there was this guy called John, John Heiler who now nobody remembers his name. But there was an article, big article on him in The New Yorker in 2002. He was the guy who started this site called Microcontent News. And he started chronicling, uh, chronicling uh, with a very analytical uh, bent on what's happening in the the smaller micro media world, blogging and all mm-hmm, these others, mm-hmm. and then New Yorker did a very long piece on him, and he became a he went on TV and started doing TV. I don't know where he is now; mm. his site is long gone. He and I became friends, and so I remember TikTok Diner on the, the crappiest diner in New York City uh, on 30 on West side. Yeah. On like eight, 34th and 8th yeah, or something yeah, like right, that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and I sat there and one day and said, Ruffin, what do you want to do? I said, I want to start a, 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 a blog. Um, cause I don't know if this company that I'm working at is going to stay too long. Uh, he said, what do you, what do you want it about? And I said, I said, let's discuss. And we started discussing and I said, paid content, which is, this is what's happening. People are, so the internet bubble had burst early days of like New York Times Crossword or like Slate and Salon, people had to pay for Street.com was mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Wall Street Journal was there. Consumer mm-hmm. Reports was there. I said, that's the trend I'm covering daily on um, Silicon Alley Daily, which is the newsletter. The magazine had, had shut down. Right, weren't you basically the editor of that newsletter? Well, so Jason, uh, we launched this thing called Venture Reporter, so we are covering venture. In an era was nobody was funding uh-huh. anybody, so uh-huh. that was not a great idea. Um, and so uh, he laid off everybody, and I was the only one left, so I was the managing editor. Mm. Um, and it may have been one or two more people doing other kinds of other support work, but certainly I was the only editorial who was writing the newsletter. I learned the power of newsletters because of Jason. Mm-hmm. I, I really did. And... Um, 
Brian Alvey, who has been his business partner many times mm -hmm. over since, he was the CTO. Mm -hmm. I learned about you know the, the technicalities of newsletters through him when I was there. Um, and the, the, the habit-forming nature of email. Um, and so when I started paid content after talking to John Heiler, um, I said, this is going to be my resume. And I can show people this is how I can cover the industry. I think there's some value in, in aggregating. Mm -hmm. When everybody else was running away from online media, I wanted to show the trend of paid content. It really was narrow at that point. It was not the blog. I, I registered .org because .com was not available. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. It's like the worst name ever in hindsight. Um, I had no sense it would turn into business. It was just a, it was just a glorified resume. And um, people started, I remember June 11th, I think, is when I launched it. It was summer, really hot. I was living in Inwood, way uptown, like 200th Street. I read you're in a $400 a month uh, room share, which is a good deal even if it's a room share. Yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, yeah, I had a room and it was, oh my God, it was um, on the, it's like a fifth or sixth floor walk up uh -huh. uh, because the elevator was too old yeah. in that building. Um, and we should say this is 2002, summer of 2002. This is summer of 2002. I won media and Romanesco were there, which were which were aggregating mm -hmm. links, and Romanesco was doing some commentary, a little bit of commentary as well. Romanesco I won media was, was too. I won media was there. Yeah, it was just link okay. aggregation. Patrick Phillips, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what he's doing now. It's shut down since, but uh, I started aggregating, and I I did some story original, and so Jason found out that I was doing this blog uh -huh. and he actually didn't say anything he said oh great I'm glad you're doing it uh -huh. go continue doing it while I was working for him right um, he didn't discourage me at all which is great of him had he said shut it down I would have shut it down and you know history mm. wouldn't have happened yeah. my history wouldn't have happened so uh, but he said no continue doing it whatever you're doing because he didn't think it was any competitor or whatever sure um, and so and I'll come back to that point later um I, I broke some story about Inside.com. I'd already left Inside.com. Like, who owned the domain now? A short story. And then Romanesco linked to it in one of his links. And that's how people started learning about paid content. And uh, and then I won media link to some of my... And I started doing some original stories a little bit here and there. Or original analysis nugget here and there about online media. Um, my... Um, Jason's company was about to be sold or shut down. I forget exact what it was. So I moved from U.S. to London where I was a citizen and was having some visa issues in U.S. as well. Um, and uh, um, London, I had complete... Uh, um, I was clear that I was going to find a job there. Not like continue... The blog was just a hobby. I'll continue to... resume, like you said. Yes. Yeah. Um, if U.S. was bad, U.K. was worse in terms of the economy and internet economy, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Nobody was giving me a job. I almost got a job at this mining magazine uh, that did copy editing tests. Like I, I passed a few, and then they rejected me at the last stage. I'm glad I didn't mm. go into mining, his, uh, mining media, whatever it was called. Um, and so blog was the only thing going in my life. I was living with uh, this... Uh, Indian origin aunt of mine who was in London who was used to people coming from India, Pakistan staying for a few months getting on their feet and leaving 
their, her house was big. Uh-huh. She was absolutely used to people staying in her house for a few few months. That's what I did. Um, pay content kept on going. I had the newsletter started. Let me let me interrupt you for the nerdy technical details. Yeah, you're on movable type, right? Movable. I was the one of the first customers. So blogger, initially, I think paid content. I forget exactly, but I think paid content was on Blogger for like a week. And for whatever, I think Movable Type had just launched. Mm-hmm. And I found that better. Uh-huh. Only because you could host, I think you it was like a download edition, you could host it on your on server. Your own, right, yeah. As opposed to Blogger, which was a hosted version for right, it. Right, exactly. That. And that's why I thought I want to have more control over the CMS, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. blogging system. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Paid content initially, if you look at the archive.org pages, was just a one big one mm-hmm. page. Mm-hmm. The traffic was one page. That mm-hmm. was it. Mm-hmm. Back in the days, blog used to be that. Yeah. Tons of posts. I used to do like 10, 15 posts a day. A day. Aggregation. The other question is, you, you already mentioned this about how Romanesco links to you. In the, um, I feel like in the early days, it's a chicken and egg thing where, well... Is anyone reading blogs? Do people know what blogs are? How are people going to find you? But conversely, since there's few people in the pond, it's a small pond, that those early people, a lot of them became the big people later because they were the first in the pond. So give me a sense of what it was like to grow an audience in 2002 and and how people found you and things like that. I think it was... Links was like back and forth. And blog rolls were valuable. And blog rolls were valuable. I, you know, the... I don't remember exactly, but I think Movable Type also had a running list of blogs that have just been updated. Mm-hmm. There were directories of blogs. Mm-hmm. Um, I won an award relatively early as the best online blog, because uh, I was based in London. It was a European award that I won. Um, and um, the newsletter. The email, I had the foresight and I think it's really because I, I had seen the power of email before at Silicon Alley Reporter um, it was a PHP based uh, open source email uh, software that I installed on on the hosting hosting company that I was using and I was just sending newsletter through that and I think mobile type became better at integrating all that stuff later but um, but I was hand coding a newsletter and I used to send it daily and I think that daily at a certain time London having five hours ahead mm-hmm. helped mm-hmm. so by the time 9am hit I was 2pm 2, 2 PM there and I had already done the work I could have done um, I remember calling Ross Levinson this is interesting uh, one night I was living in this so um, I'm jumping a few things but I was living with my aunt, and then this European conference in Germany said, hey, Rafa, do you want to come and speak on paid content? I'd never done public speaking in my life before. I used uh-huh. to stammer till I was 17. So I'd never done public speaking ever in my life. And he said, not only will you will we um, have you speak, you're going to get 2,500 euros to come and speak. So holy shit, that's a lot of money. So I was able to move out of my aunt's basement or whatever into an actual room in East London was leaking from like three different places and I used to sit in the middle and sleep in the middle because mm-hmm. like it was, le- it was leaking for safety from- yeah um, and I had asthma too as a kid so I didn't want like too much moisture in the room mm-hmm. um, anyway um, and so and I was updating paid content initially from internet cafes in East London because I didn't have internet I couldn't afford internet um, and so and then this room that I took it was above an internet uh, above an internet cafe run by this Pakistani guy 
who said, I will give you the room, share my internet costs. Mm. I'll give you a line, I'll give you a phone. Mm. And I started reporting on US, sitting from my room in East London, calling people. And like, I remember it must have been 12 or something in the night. And I'm calling Ross Levinson, West Coast, because I think Ross was in LA at that time. And he said, what time is it there? Why are you? And he said, it's at 12. He said, holy shit, you're calling from there. I said, yeah, well, I have a phone and uh, I'm, you know, I don't have anything else to do. I'm going to, I was, I forget what the story was. He was at Fox Sports back in the days. Mm -hmm. Then he became big later. Yeah. Um, so that's what it was. Um, was, people, it a, was it a competitive advantage, uh, the, the hour difference? So yes. that you'd be able to break stories yeah. overnight here. Yeah. 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 I mean, you could imagine the metabolism of everybody right. else at that time. Mm -hmm. It was not the crazy metabolism it is today. Mm -hmm. uh, it was still very slow. And, uh, you know, what took people... It, I said, uh, my tagline was, I kill myself so you don't have to. Mm -hmm. And that was my tagline. That so I used do you, to. you're doing what, like a, a dozen posts a day? Yeah, sometimes more. And I'd started other sites as well. I started this site called Moco News. Right, which, uh, we'll get to that in a second. Do you take any blame or credit for, as you say, the metabolism of the modern-day blog? Yeah, I think, well, blogs, and I was listening to some podcasts this morning. Uh, somebody was talking about some some history of blog or whatever. I forget. But the point is the prom the promise of the blogs. Remember, this is the days of bookmarking. Mm -hmm. How else? And RSS was very early. Right. Uh -huh. The promise of the blog was every time you come to the blog, you'll see something new. If you because it was in reverse chronological order, chunks, posts, and stuff. That promise that somehow it was an unwritten promise, nobody you know was enforcing it or anything, um, meant that you had to update your blog many times a day. It just it's, it's not just true for for paid content. It was true for tons of other blogs. It used to churn a lot. Um, if you read early stories about blogs, that's what they will say. Like churning, mm -hmm. I would imagine was probably invented by blogs well and the suck.com guys recently talked about that too that that was the, that was their discovery early on that if if you could guarantee people they did it on a daily basis but if you could guarantee people next time i go back there's going to be something new there then you create that habit you create that audience yeah yeah and that's what it was um and so i uh and the email newsletter which started getting into people's inboxes daily at a certain time I think that was very important to send it at a certain time you start your day with paid with, content with email yeah. paid content people said to me many times in different ways like we wake up with you or we see your your face before we see our spouse's face like that's very powerful to say like that's the the standard I still hold skift to which is we start the day with you mm -hmm. like that has stayed with me through my life mm -hmm. um, I started seeing early days of mobile Mm -hmm. in UK which was early US was behind the times mm -hmm. Nokia was big in, uh, uh, and some of the other companies Sony Ericsson was big back in the days um, there's a bunch of mobile conferences happening in Europe Amsterdam and London and etc and the kids were using phones primarily for like ringtones uh, and, and early versions of games and SMS and I saw how kids and the, these are immigrant kids in East London uh, playing with phones and spending so much time on phones. This is pre-smartphone. Uh, and so I said, there's something there. Ringtones are becoming big. I started covering mobile content, on-paid content. It became enough part of it that I launched a spin-off site. I started a digital music site, which I shut down later. I started a European um, 
European weekly newsletter that I also shut down later. Um, and this is all still solo. You- this is all still solo. I'm doing everything. What how money started being getting made was, I said, people started asking about advertising. I didn't know what to answer them. Like I don't know what to tell them. And then I said, I. I don't know, I don't remember how exactly I, I came upon this, but I asked two of these companies that I, I'd become close to, two like vendor type companies, send me your banner ads. I'm gonna put it up for a, for a month for free. Um, and I don't remember why I was, I was so smart back then, but whatever, whatever it was, it came to me. I'm sure I was not that smart back then. Um, and I put the banners up for these two companies and like literally the day later, I got an email from their competitors saying how much did that cost and i remember distinctly thinking 500 dollars a month sounds a lot like how about 400 because it's below the 500 threshold Uh that people may have with their budgets or whatever so i said sure 400 dollars a month you give me your banner i'll put it up on paid content and the newsletter and they said yes and so that's really how the how i started selling ads i had no idea not selling by cpms it was just sponsorships because it was a you know B2B audience. And that's how it grew. The first ever story done on me was on Wired. Um, Leander Caney, who's now a big Apple guy, uh, I don't know exactly where he is today, but he has written about Apple. He's like the Apple expert these days. Um, he wrote the first article on me. He interviewed me on phone when I was in East London. And this whole article, blogging for bucks. And for years and years, when people started about web blogs and making money, mm-hmm. that was the first article that came mm-hmm. in I, search. I, I read it and it, it was interesting that the, um, the, the, the just the whole tone of the piece is wait what, and then I think you quote. A I figure. was reading last night and reading to my wife and said, "Wow, you were you were something else back then." Well, right, because it, it's like you know, yeah, I'm probably going to clear sixty thousand this year, and yeah, you can do this; it's possible. And so even the tone of the questions are like, I don't know if I believe you, and stuff. But but then also they get into so much because again, this you're doing this by yourself. About I got this sense of isolation from you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I just had I was in a in a my lifeline to the world mm-hmm. was the blog. Was your work? Yeah, yeah it uh-huh. really was. I had no friends. I had some friends back from India who had moved to London, so I was meeting them on weekends. They were obviously either working or studying, etc. Um, so I was meeting them once a week, uh, maybe slightly more sometimes. Uh, but in between, I filled my day, and I my aunt who who's initially I lived with, I went to meet her once in a while. But that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't really have any friends. I didn't. Some industry friends, I started like Guardian. I got connected to Guardian, which I later mm-hmm. sold my company yeah, sure. to. The, the, the early tech blogging scene in London, mm-hmm. I used to go to some of those things. But even that was rare. Um, so yeah, I was isolated. But like this was my life and this was the only way I knew what to do with my life. Let me ask a slightly different question. Um, you're talking about uh, it's starting to, to the, the Wired is a big deal in terms of you getting an audience, gaining credibility. But what about that question of credibility? Like, as you're starting to break stories, because you're working all night, all of a sudden you're, you're delivering overnight scoops that are scooping everybody. Yeah. What about the credibility early on that the real quotes, real media gives you? Because remember, early on, I remember this so clearly, like blogs were They were, were treated, never linked to us. Right. They wouldn't treat you as a real news source no, at the they beginning, didn't. right? No, but they were, because I was so early in covering all kinds of stuff, 
they were looking to me as a source. They would not credit me, but that's mm. how they got a lot of stories. Journal was there. New York Times was doing this. Um, every CNET, CNET, who I looked up to way back when, and mm-hmm. I said, I want to be a CNET journalist back when I was in school. Right. I really wanted to be a CNET journalist. Uh, CNETnews.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, this guy, Jim Hu, who used to be there, he used to break every story mm-hmm. on Yahoo and everything back when Yahoo was big. Uh, and so... Um, what was the question again? The the uh, the, the quote unquote real world news. Yeah, was... I think it grew over a period of time. They saw that I was. Did you ever have to just say to somebody, "Listen, asshole, <laughs> give me credit"? Like, uh, oh, I I I probably it's the, the archives are gone because yeah. the site sad story. But um, the, I, the those posters were somewhere on archive.org. I wrote a post with headlines saying "Wall Street Journal stops stealing my stories." Mm. And it was, I, I created a dingbat logo with like, don't steal my stories crossed. And like, I actually created that logo, mm-hmm. put it in the story. And then Wall Street Journal, after that post, um, had an internal meeting and came up with a policy of crediting blogs as a result of that specific mm-hmm. post. Um, and I know this because they told me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's what, you know, that's what used to happen. I used to say, you don't have Twitter or social media back then. This was me just communicating through my blog. And people knew, like I was, I wasn't doing tons of personal commentary mixing. It was certainly, but people knew, like the email newsletter was an outlet where I would say, today I'm in this city, I'm covering this conference, or I'm traveling here. So people at sort of all times knew some sense of what I was doing. So it was that mix of personal and coverage of, of this industry. And um, then I moved to LA, I followed a relationship to LA um, and uh, this was what the internet was just coming back 2004 mm-hmm. bubble had sort of burst and finished Google's um, about to IPO yes uh, actually before that I wanted to tell an anecdote sure. John Battelle who's been on this show yes. who I, you know I've known many for many years now since uh-huh. he called me this is before Federated Media I was in London I was sitting on my desk and he's he, I forget if he emailed me or called me or just called me um but I remembered this phone conversation with him where he wanted to know what I was doing, how I was doing it. And then it, the call ended kind of weirdly saying, whatever you were, something to the effect that I remember him saying, whatever you're doing, I can do. And I said to him, then go ahead and do it. What's stopping you? He may have been f- trying to figure out what ended up being federated media, which is how to sell ads on blogs and create a network out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but that was a sort of a small little anecdote. So you're you're saying that you took it as um, not a threat, but like what, what you're doing, anyone could do. But maybe in retrospect, he was feeling around about is there something in this blogging? Or maybe business? he also wanted to think about maybe he wanted to own a network of blogs right, too. Right. He didn't end up owning those, but he at right. least ended up uh, selling advertising mm-hmm. around those. So you know some of those, and I started. It was interesting because I was also, also selling ads as well as writing on these companies. Yeah. So like I remember Real Networks. I had a very contentious relationship with Rob Glazer, mm-hmm. the CEO of Real Networks. Also been on the show, yes. Uh, and Rob, Rob's president at that time called me on the phone and said, I'm going to burn down your house. This is <laughs> I was in London. Because mm-hmm. I was covering um, the existential crisis happening at Real Networks because mm-hmm. like Windows Media was becoming mm-hmm. big. Real was the pioneer. Um, and Windows was taking over 
and I, I was doing very like I was doing reporting which internally the employees did not know about I forget how all I got all the stories but and sitting in a flat in London mm -hmm. and um, and then also when I moved to LA and I remember actually the call I got was in LA from the from this president who said I'm uh, I'm gonna burn down your house and I said holy shit and and then he got fired shortly after yeah, not for that yeah. but shortly after um, and so Rob and I had a contentious relationship for a long time he thought I was out to get him or something mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but they ended up advertising later mm. uh, and then Infospace was there Infospace also pulled their advertising because I was doing very aggressive reporting on Infospace mm -hmm. I'm sure I remember Infospace mm -hmm. um, they had a big office in LA as well wow. I think they're Seattle based if I'm not mistaken yeah um, I can't remember if I've talked to any info space people. But I know, go on. a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and so mobile was becoming big and LA was becoming a hub of it as well. Mobile, uh, Jamdat was started there. So um, I started hiring people. Um, Naturally, I mean, I, refine. it took you long enough. You know, how many, two years, you're selling the ads, you're writing all the stories. Come yeah, two, two and a half years. Yeah. So I started, I was going to go away for about two months on some travels and um, I hired Stacy Kramer who became uh, the executive editor later and my partner in crime for a long time and uh, this other guy um, in Australia he's a Mex no he was a Australian guy living in Mexico mm. who knew how to who knew about wireless and mm -hmm. and and mobile and he started covering Moku like he started writing Moku news for those two months I was away Stacy was doing paid content for two months, and then I came back two months later, and then, um, and then the economy. I started getting money, so I I started. I just kept them on. They're freelancers, uh, and then this group of five internet luminaries came to me and said, "Rafat, we want to buy majority and paid content," and they were going to invest hundred thousand dollars. And they were going to take majority in the company. And company was me and two, two freelancers. Mm -hmm. I hired a lawyer in LA, uh, who's now a friend, who after many negotiations back and forth, finally said to me, Rafat, I'm telling you as a friend, not as a lawyer, do not take this deal. Because you are young and you don't know what you're doing. And I took his advice and that was the best advice I ever, he, I ever got, was to not sell my company. It was just essentially hiring my talent. Um, these are very well-known people. Mm -hmm. I can't name any of them mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. um, I've fallen off, fallen out with some of them. Some of them I know. Still, then a year later, um, somehow somebody reached out. I forget. And like, we had conversations with three different companies to sell paid content. This is two thousand five. Mm -hmm. Dow Jones, Reuters, and I forget the third one. Mm -hmm. I don't remember. I went with a bank, a friend of mine. Uh, we did meetings and they were just essentially valuing me and Stacy's talent. They were Again, not valuing the company. An AccuHire, essentially. Essentially. Yeah. This was before the term AccuHire right. was invented. Um, so I didn't end up doing those deals. In, I mean, in hindsight, if you talk to Gordon Krovitz, who was the publisher of Dow Jones at that point, publisher of Wall Street Journal, he would tell you, and he's now an investor in Skip, that I was the first person who ever offered to buy paid content, which is actually mm -hmm. true. Uh, fully buy and so um, meanwhile one day I'm sitting so none of those deals happened the audience is growing we started doing these mixers uh, right. events um, the first one I did was Viceroy Hotel in Santa Monica uh -huh. very very organic 
I got twelve thousand dollars. Like, and you reached out to to the audience. Even I just said, time. "Hey, I want to do this thing." Yeah. And like, I remember this agent from UTA, the talent agency, yeah. said, "Hey, I know somebody at Viceroy. How about I get Viceroy for you?" And he said, "Okay, let's get Viceroy Hotel." And some and like two of our sponsors said, "Okay, we'll pay for the for the drinks and snacks." So I think we got like twelve thousand dollars sponsorship and there must have been some profit there but I forget and so this was a time where I didn't have any balance sheet I was and you and I were talking about this before I was getting advertisers but I had no, I had no sense of finance or anything and I was invoicing these people when I ran when I ran out of money in my bank account and so like I was invoicing some companies four months later and then they were mad at me because I didn't have that much cash at one point but it was just going you know it was a really a, a one-person show with some freelancers and then one day I was sitting in my desk in LA at a phone next to me and then I pick up the phone and then on the other end is Alan Patrickoff Alan Patrickoff was like I was covering him back in Silicon Alley Reporter mm-hmm. 1.0 days I had heard him speak at conferences when I was here in New York and this is around the time when he's starting Greycroft, right? He had not officially launched Greycroft. He was just starting Greycroft. We were his first investment, second exit. Um, and uh, he had a partner in L.A., Dana, Dana Settle, who's still in L.A. She's, a, uh, I guess, a co I forget exactly, but a partner at Greycroft. And so she first met me, and then... I started talk. Alan said to me on the phone, I keep hearing about paid content. Every investor, every company I want to invest in, in in digital media, I keep hearing about paid content. So I want to talk to you. I happened to be coming to New York like the next week or something to speak at some conference. And I met him for 20 minutes. In 20 minutes, he told me everything that I was taking years to figure out. Here are your challenges. Here are the continuing challenges you'll face. Here's what media landscape is. Well, we should say because he had invested in media. He, had, he knew media. He uh, was invested in so New York course. Magazine. New York Magazine. On. And yeah. he... Um, tons of other stuff. So like, he understood the... The power of media. Right. He was a media... He, among tech... He was also a media investor. Mm-hmm. Which is very rare mm-hmm. even today. Yeah. Um, so he knew what media was. And um, at Apex, which he was one of the co-founders of, Apex bought giant media companies back back in the days um, so I said this is the guy this is who I want to take money from mm-hmm. and but my company situation was it was a sole proprietor whose receipts were in a literally in a shoebox if you ask my CFO my CFO at Skift is, was also the CFO at Paycom oh yeah um, so even after the story you're about to tell he stuck with you he stuck with me he will tell you that he came to my apartment in LA house in LA was in my bedroom taking receipts from various um, closets and stuff, putting it in a, in a box and taking it away and creating the balance sheet, the financial whatever, the financial records, ta- taxes. We paid back taxes, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that delayed the funding by about six to eight months. Mm-hmm. Um, but, he, but Alan was the one who made all these connections. My CFO now, Michael Kniff, was also the CFO of paid content. He, he connected, Alan connected. And then uh, we did our first ever conference. We did our first ever mixer in New York, which I'll, which is a little bit of an anecdote. This is 2006, the hot days of, right. of, of Web 2.0. Web 2.0. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
at the Salzburg, it was at Union Square, uh, at the W Union Square. Mm-hmm. Um, David Carr did a whole column starting with there's a bubble in the blog world mm. using me mm-hmm. and paid content as the filter, which I never forgave him Oh, for. I didn't find that. I wish I had found that. Um, and then he actually pivoted to talking about Gawker, which was his favorite right. topic yeah. for a long time. Denton was there. Right. Um, but it was so hot, that party, that people were lined up for blocks around um, W Union Square. And it was sort of paid content as a ride in the New York media scene type of moment. Mm-hmm. Um which was just an awesome moment for a you know a kid who who was blogging in his bedroom a few years ago, um, and so um, 2006, Alan Patrickoff invested. We started our doing events. Our first conference was called Economics to Social Media. This was MySpace days, back when people yeah. said to brands, "Do you have a MySpace strategy?" Right. Uh, MySpace was based in LA. Right. And so we did this conference at Beverly Hilton. I remember the next day. Um, the Golden Globes was the day after our conference ended um, in the same room because uh-huh, they uh-huh. always do in Beverly Hilton. It was such a hot conference. We sold out two months before. Uh-huh. People were buying sponsorship just to get in. So it was the first paid content conference. It went off awesomely. We made tons of money uh, from it. Um, and then we did a bunch of other conferences after. So 2006, we took investment. Um, we became sort of a formal company. I, I had our the pay contest first office in Santa Monica, uh, walking distance from where I used to live. I didn't used to drive. I didn't drive for... I lived in L.A. for five years. I didn't drive uh, three and a half years out of it. That's hard to pull uh, off in L.A. I yeah. know, I know. Which essentially meant that I was working all the time, which meant I all used to call people to Santa Monica to meet me. Um, Although I shouldn't say that. Now we live in an Uber world. <laughs> so, I know. Yeah. This is pre-Uber. Yeah, yeah. Taxis and yeah, like that back yeah. then were expensive. Yeah. Um, but we had by that time, we had opened uh, multiple sites. We had Moco News. We had Paid Content UK. We had Content Sutra, which was an India site, early days of India site. Um, and you've brought in also, again, from old media or real media or whatever, um, like Nathan Richardson. and, and He came like in, so... Uh, Maybe I'm skipping ahead to... to You're skipping a little bit. Sorry. So 2007, the peak of uh, the Web 2.0, I think, was 2007. Um, Our conference happened. We did a conference in New York. Future Business Media, uh, which the biggest of big media CEO spoke. It was Waldorf. It almost bankrupted us because it was Waldorf Astoria. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was a big conference for us. And then... um, we started raising our sec- we we started raising our second round. The idea was we would hire a CEO. I'm going to stop you because I know where this is going. Let me ask you then the nitty gritty question of what is the economics for blogging as a business in 2007? Are you making any money on on? Yeah, the- we had multi. I, I, uh, if uh, I remember 2007. Let me finish. Yeah. Not any money. Are you making any money from the web traffic itself, or is most of the money that you're making from the conferences? It was fifty fifty. Okay. And B2B, it, not that there's any average across the industry, but if you really like the rough ballpark, that is not an unusual right. revenue split. Because how many of these media companies, from TechCrunch to you name them, the, the conferences were always a big component of, of their business plan. Yeah, and for us, conferences was big. And we, at 2007 or 2008, before the crash happened, I think we had 10 conferences planned. Mm-hmm. Um, for the year, that mm-hmm. was a lot of conferences. Mm-hmm. They included like half. We started doing these half-day shorter conferences. 
I remember did this fascinating conference on the economics of celebrity media back when TMZ was just like all these celebrity sites came, mm-hmm. media sites right, yeah, came, yeah. Uh, blogs that became big. Paris Hilton, Hilton yeah. spoke mm-hmm. at our conference. Yeah. Uh, the guy who runs TMZ, uh-huh. I forget his name. Uh, Harvey. Harvey. I don't remember um, Levin. Yes, yeah. Harvey Levin. He spoke at a. It was at the Roosevelt Hotel yeah. in Hollywood. Yeah. It was this fabulous conference, and like the biggest of big publicists, and the whole conference was about how blogs have changed the whole world, uh-huh. and how stories get out in, in celebrity world. Yeah. Um, so some great stuff we were doing, uh-huh. and. Um, so I, but I went up to the board, and we already had a board by that one more, time. One more, one uh, more. Didn't you guys also experiment early on with um, what today we would call um, native advertising? Native advertising. So I wouldn't say I we invented native advertising because mm-hmm. that would be too much, but I was the first one who put ads in RSS, right? As sponsored posts, mm-hmm. sponsored posts essentially because you remember these are blog posts that were stacked yeah, on top yeah, of each yeah. other. One of those posts happened to be a sponsor post. It used to be set. I used to call it sponsor post mm-hmm. um, is what I called it because it was a blog mm-hmm. post. And this was 2003, mm-hmm. uh, four maybe. And I started obviously putting those ads in the newsletter and became, you know, that became a big part of our revenues. Uh, but because those ads also went in RSS, we were one of the first people to push ads in RSS. Mm-hmm. Um, I started doing experimenting with podcasts. This is also 2004. Mm-hmm. I remember doing podcasts starting in 2004. Mm-hmm. Uh, a very clunky t- way to put them on, yeah, etc. Yeah, yeah, et yeah, yeah. But th- that was early as well. Um, yeah, so we were very early in doing sponsored native advertising, mm-hmm. if you will. Okay. All right. So uh, I interrupted so many times. No, you can continue with the story. So. 2007-ish, maybe, um, you're, you're thinking of raising a second round. So I ended up with the board, I remember, late 2007 or something, maybe earlier, that I think we need a CEO. Like, I was the CEO. I was the publisher and editor, because mm-hmm. that's what I liked. Right. Uh, I didn't want to be CEO, because I felt like that's, I was kind of faking my way to being a business boss or something. Uh, and so I, I went up to Alan and, and, and the board and said, we need a CEO, we need a chief of sales. We don't have money today to be able to afford these two people. Um, I don't know if I told you. The money that we raised from Alan was only half a million dollars. Mm. That was the only money in hindsight that Fate Content ended up raising. Mm-hmm. And then we sold. Um, so it was very little money that we raised. Series A, comically low Series A mm-hmm. these days. Obviously, all of it would be angel round, right. maybe even more. Right. Um, and so it just so happened that he knew this guy, Nathan was coming out of Yahoo Finance, who was, he was running Yahoo Finance. Um, and also he knew somebody as a chief of sales candidate. Um, little backstory, the guy who almost became the CEO of paid content was Jason Goldberg, who ended up starting Fab. Right, and was at the time Jobster? Jobster had, had imploded. Uh-huh. Goldberg knew Alan very well. Mm-hmm. He came in and he was impressive, which is really what his talent is, uh, presentation and just his talent for raising money, which you know we all know now. Right. Um, he really lobbied hard. It was between him and Nathan. Mm-hmm. And he came on so hard that I got um, spooked. Mm-hmm. So I didn't hire him. Mm-hmm. Um, and in hindsight, you know, I'm sure he will say it's probably good for him to ended up starting Fab, which, you know, I don't know. I haven't talked to him in years now. But um, he almost became the CEO. 
and uh, and then Nathan came and we really liked him and uh, he met everybody and met the team and we announced him so it just so happened that because he was available at that time we ended up hiring him first and then going for the round first but as soon as he hit we figured okay now we have a team we can go out and raise the money we're out raising money uh, I think with three term sheets I had signed one term sheet mm-hmm. Guardian came in then and said I heard because we started speaking to, we had had spoken to some strategics CNET I remember we went far with CNET on investing in our Series B um, bunch of others I should say also um, you've cut deals at this point with people like the Washington Post to, to syndicate, syndicate all of our content. stuff yeah. so, so you're you're in in bed as it were with, with major media major companies major media companies yeah. yeah yeah New York Times may have looked at investing in us too I forget exactly mm-hmm. what it was I think they did as part of the strategic thing um, and so um, Guardian said, we'll, we don't want to invest. We heard yours. And Simon Waldman, who was the head of digital, was the first guy when I was living in London. He said, when I met him 2003, when I was living in London, he said, Payfunders should be part of Guardian. And it was just not like, it was just passing mention. So it came back full circle right. in 2008. Um, and I initially I walked away from the deal and then Carolyn McCall, this, the global group CEO, who's now the CEO of EasyJet, the airline in US, and uh, based in UK, she called me and said, Rafa, come back to the table, and I came back to the table. Um, Mark Patrickoff, who runs Mesa Ventures, which is investment bank, who happened to be Alan's son, the reason we went with Mark, not because he was Alan's son, but because we knew so many investment banks who were sponsors of pay content, that we couldn't choose invest on one bank and everybody else would be pissed. Yeah, yeah. So we said, Alan said, here's a way out. You go with my son, you tell them, you blame me for hiring him so that you can protect all, 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 your, all your relationships with banks who are, who are sponsoring our conferences and for advertising and pay content. And so uh, we didn't shop the deal. In hindsight, the biggest mistake I made with that company, uh-huh. which is we didn't shop the deal. Uh-huh. Um, I got so wowed by Guardian's journalistic mm-hmm. credentials. Mm-hmm which, you know, obviously well-known, yeah, yeah. that, um, uh, and I, you know, I was born in UK, so I thought, oh, British citizen, I'll have the US and UK balance, and I like that in my life, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they made big promises. This is four months before the world crashed. Right, yeah. Um, and so I remember July 9th, 2008 is when we signed the deal here in New York City. I was in LA. Uh, we signed in the lawyer's office. Um and um, that night, July 9th is the night I met Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton together for the first time. There's a side story. Uh, Alan was the, uh, was the campaign finance committee chairman for Hillary Clinton's campaign. And Hillary Clinton had just conceded defeat um, to Obama in the primaries. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This was the first private fundraiser like two weeks after Obama became the nominee. The nominee yeah. And Alan called me and said, come to this hotel, Lowe's Regency. Um, I want you to meet somebody. He didn't tell me who it was. This was the night I finally closed my deal. I was here in New York City. He didn't tell me to like dress up or anything like that. And uh, I go there and he said, and I was wearing like jeans and, and like flip-flops, whatever it was. He said, what are you wearing? I said, what do you mean or what am I wearing? He said, I wanted you to meet Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. And I said, couldn't you have told me on the phone? I said, I wanted to give it a surprise. And I said, well, you know, if you want me to be a formal black tie dinner, tell me. So anyway, by this time we went in and security patted me down, looked at me weird, and I met President then nominee 
Barack Obama and Hillary and Hillary both have photos with them, in mm-hmm. which I'll tell my grandkids. Mm-hmm. This is the night where I sold my company. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Alan introduced me to Hillary, saying, "Here's one of my kids, meaning one of his. Yeah. Um, he sold his company tonight." And Hillary Clinton said back to me, "Oh, that's like selling one of your kids." And I said something. I forget what I said to her, but that was my chit chat with. Yeah. Uh, and then with President Obama, Obama, he he, 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 he said, "Hi, I'm Barack Obama." And I didn't have the heart to tell him. I was a green card holder at that point. I was yeah. not a citizen. Yeah. I didn't have a heart to tell him I can't vote for you. Yeah, I really yeah. wanted to. But anyway, it's just my side story. Well, that's, so that kind of leads into something because when Hillary says to you, selling your kids, um, I believe that you uh, you sell in, in summer in, 2008. Yeah. You stick around with paid content for another two years. I've read that you've said that when you sell a company – a switch goes off. In your head. In your head. I mean, you know this. You've yes. sold your company. And so you say that that happens with every entrepreneur. You know that there's sort of that little fire kind of goes out a bit. Yeah, and I've said this many times to many entrepreneurs who are selling their companies. Uh, and I said, it will go off. You just you have no control over it. It will go off. Mm-hmm. And you just need to know how long that time is and what are you going to do after. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. Because in, in your deal with... Um, Guardian. There had to be earnouts and things like there that. There were earnouts. So. In hindsight, again, first-time entrepreneur did not know any better. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, also blogging by nature and a personality involved meant that it was very much talent-led deal. Um, and um, I would not have done that. I mean, I certainly would, would not do that kind of deal again, ever. And it made, gave me a lesson of not to... Well, pay content wasn't meant to be a company, so in hindsight nothing I could control there mm-hmm. but I want the skift my next company now to not be dependent on me as the company grows mm-hmm. that's my goal ultimately is to make myself obsolete that is a perfect segue because before we get to skift and before we get to how you got to skift um, especially with with blogs like Huffington Post like TechCrunch that are built around a single founder well Gigaom Gigaom's another one um, Weblogs Inc., which was actually was smart. There, there's so Jason many. Well, smart. even if you think of things like um, all of the guys that left to start um, The Verge, so where that's it's people following the personalities of these writers that they know. Yeah. I'm thinking in the context of our modern, of, of, of 2016 and companies like Vox and things like that. Um, what would you say about this? this idea that it's built around a person's personality sometimes a brand can go beyond it like Huffington Post seemingly has yeah. done but then other times when the founder's fire goes out a little bit then the the the, the brand and and, and the, the the company yeah, itself I mean, look seems... at TechCrunch I mean it's yeah. not the same right. when Arrington was there exactly. I had huge amount of disagreements with him on right. all kinds of stuff he and I fought publicly at Web 2.0 John Battelle's conference he and I had like a verbal spat, which everybody else mm-hmm. saw. Um, so he and I used to compete, and he hated the fact that I was the first person to sell his, my mm-hmm. com- first blogger to sell right. my company. Um, but yeah, I think that was you know Giga Ohm. You saw mm-hmm. what happened. Sure. Um, again, a cautionary tale of depending on one person. When one person goes, then sort of everything else. Um, I think one person companies in hindsight should remain one-person companies. Mm. Well, personality... That's probably the wrong way to put it. Sure. Person, there's a big place for personality-led media companies. Mm-hmm. Martha Stewart, obviously. You know. Yeah, but I think that, you know, the, the, the re... 
rejuvenation in the newsletter world uh-huh. today uh-huh. is a little bit of those person. I think it's moved away from blogs to newsletters to mm-hmm. to some extent uh-huh. that whole thing. And you know some of those are doing well. Um, ben Thompson with right Stratechery. Um, but like so, I, other, I'm thinking examples. of like five thirty eight. Where the 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 person behind five thirty five thirty eight has so many great writers now on staff, but yeah, you know it's still well. What if what if the founder leaves? Like what happens to five thirty eight? It's 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 media, and you know this very well. Um, these are editorial people led outlets. Mm-hmm. Editorial people led outlets are very much dependent on the personality of the editorial person, mm-hmm. sensibility, which is a very nebulous thing. You know, you have a point of view of the world a voice a voice that comes across um that's very difficult to replicate i mean you know this is not original thinking on my side that's just the reality of it um so you know gigaon's biggest mistake was probably calling it gigaon among other things yeah um and so at least i said okay pay content was the crappiest term but uh, word or phrase dot org but at least it wasn't my name right yeah so um and you know, hindsight, irony, Gigom ended up owning paid content, and then yes. Gigom shut down, and paid content shut down as well. But um, I, you know, six, four months after selling, the financial crisis hit. Guardian had big plans with us for US. They all went out of the window. They were laying off hundreds of people back home, as was everybody else. Mm-hmm. This is the depths of 2008, 2009 financial crisis. Um, I, they actually decided to sell it less than a year in. Mm. And then the group that owned us right, within sure. Guardian yeah. Group. The CEO of Guardian Media Group, it, it went up to the board and said, we, we, we're willing to sell off. This was a year into pay content yeah. being owned by them. Because right. they're just too busy trying to rescue the company. Survive. Uh, survive. So, But the group CEO told the the head of our division, whoever we reported into, says, I read paid content every day. I get value as this big media CEO. Why can't you guys figure out what to do with it? So the sale got canceled. Mm. Um, and then I knew at that point it was over. I My switch in my head went off mm-hmm. like a year in. And, um, and um, I actually left four months before my contract finished because they said, Rafat, you're completely tuned out. Leave. We'll just pay you the rest of your months and just go. So I went and traveled, uh, which was going to be two, three months, ended up being two years of travel. Um, did you get to, did you get to Scott, how do you say Scottora Island? Didn't you? Sukutra Island Sukutra. in Yemen. No. Well, Yemen is a, as a basket case of right. the country. Hard, at this hard point. to travel to. Especially hard to travel yeah. to. But I did go to Uzbekistan. I did go to Iceland. Iceland. Yeah. I'm a big Iceland, Icelandophile, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. Um, been five times, since I've been five times to yeah, Iceland, yeah. Uh, they should give me a citizenship. I've sent so many people there. Yeah. Um, well, it's cheap to get there from New York City. Yeah, too. now yeah. obviously, yeah. I went a week after the volcano uh-huh, stopped. Uh-huh. When I booked my sabbatical, yeah, uh, first trip, the volcano was still going on. I said, I don't know if I'll be able to go, and um, my leaving was announced. Uh, the post I I I wrote as May twenty first, twenty ten, is when I left mm-hmm. paid content. Mm-hmm. And I left for my sabbatical like two days later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the volcano had stopped a week before. So that's interesting. You do roughly two years of traveling, let's say. Um, and now you are back with a travel vertical. So before we get into that, was it that 
two years and the traveling that sort of led you in this direction? Was you learning about? No, I mean, no. But the way, how much I widely traveled, like the way I looked at the world and how widely I traveled, certainly uh, uh, reflects in how we look at the world of travel at Skift. So it's influenced by the wide outlook that I got as a result of my own traveling. The idea is not an, like it's not like a genius original idea. It's sure. a it's a B two B vertical media company for the travel industry. for the travel industry. It's pay content for the travel industry. Exactly, yeah. it's, it's not a blog. It was just because uh, you know, it's a whole me, it's a me, it's a business information media company uh, that happens to run on WordPress, and um, we have so um, I started looking at different verticals other subjects to start another business media company and i looked at sports mm. sports business daily had existed mm-hmm. uh, still exists mm-hmm. espn and everybody else covering consumer for like for like the average but, audience but the business of sports but the business of sports and i actually went further quite far mm-hmm. i spoke to bankoff and others in all mm-hmm. my, in my network i started speaking to some uh sports talent agents as well because i was in i had la connections um but I had no interest in sports. Mm-hmm. I have abs- I don't mm-hmm. know a single rule of football of mm-hmm. American football. Mm-hmm. So after a while, I figured I can tackle it as a strategic problem. I just cannot be passionate about mm-hmm. um, American sports or in right. general. Um, so I didn't do it. I looked at education as well, the business of education, travel. Just because I was traveling, and I started uh, iPad had just come out. Twenty ten iPad came out. Yeah. Um, I somehow got involved in Lonely Planet, which was then bought. Was, was then owned by BBC and I had conversations with them buying the company out of BBC uh-huh. and I came in with Hearst and we actually had a few conversations and then nothing happened. Uh, but I was initially looking at what could a consumer travel startup look like, consumer travel guide, guidebook company look like in a touch-based environment. Everybody was trying to figure out how to reinvent books on tablets. We thought tablets are going to change the world. Um, and so that was how I started learning about the, the business of travel. I started reading the B2B trades to learn about, to create a consumer travel startup. Realized how bad the trade was in travel. And I said, oh, wait, my history is in B2B uh, trade media. Maybe I should do this. This is what I know how to do. And so that's how I sort of came across that. Mm-hmm. And... I met, uh, 2011, I met now my co-founder and the editor of Skift, Jason Kleinbrett, who was at Fromers back then. Mm-hmm. He was the head of online content. Yeah. Um, Fromers was going down. It was actually sold to Google, and now it's mm-hmm. sort of a shell of itself. Yeah. And Google resold it to Mr. Fromer. Uh-huh. And so he became the editor. I became the business guy. Uh-huh. And we started it, and uh, we really technically launched it July 30th, 2012. Uh, I had already hired a journalist, a very senior journalist, um, Dennis Shaw, who's our news editor. Uh, so three of us essentially launched it in 2012. You uh, just recently on Twitter, you've been saying that um, verticals are where it's at for media. Like you mentioned uh, stock twits, ad exchange. Unfortunately, like Twitter was made for me, uh, which means that I waste uh, incredibly, in, you know, this journalist and media types yeah. waste so much yes. time on Twitter. Yeah. Um, but just talk about that, about about verticals being where it's at maybe right now. At yeah, this moment. so um, I've always been a fan of focusing on a subject matter. Consumer or B2B doesn't matter, but a subject matter. 
because I feel like that gives the passion to create something that's meaningful to people's lives. I don't have numbers on the consumer consumption habits for this, but I would bet that if somebody does a real study of consumer media consumption habits, verticals may be bigger than some of the mainstream media. Mm -hmm. Professional, If you add professional life and personal life yeah. habits together, whatever your hobbies are or whatever your personal work, mm -hmm. uh, whatever your work habits you have to read. And so I always believe that verticals, essentially focused media is where, um, and I felt like when people were talking in larger media, um, the media reporters that were covering the business of media or future of journalism, future of media, a, a conversation I hate, um, which is sort of more self-hate than anything yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. Really. Um, That's funny. I've got a question about that in yeah, a second. <laughs> but um, is, um, is like the Vox and Vice and yeah, BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed and Mike and million mm -hmm. other of these things they talk about fusion, et cetera, et cetera. And... Uh, while I think innovation, which happens in the edges, you know, cliche but true, was happening in, in so many of these small, small companies, every vertical media founder that I spoke to were having the exact same issues that I was having, both in terms of, you know, audience acquisition or email, email being the connecting thread for a lot of these vertical media plays, just because they have a direct connection to the audience. Mm -hmm. Um, so we formed this organization, this like loose collective called Verticals Collective, which is a very thriving collective of 60 different founders of vertical oh, I didn't media know anything about that. yeah it's a it's a group that i formed it's not an industry association because like, right yeah who has the time to yeah, yeah, yeah. do an industry association so informal kind of informal founders and email actually it's an email google group yeah that uh 60 different founders b2b and b2c us some uk companies some even now uh, singapore based companies just join as well um we just talk about like real tactical and strategic things what email vendor are you using uh, ad server hiring what are the questions you're asking in hiring these days where do we post this job um, uh, what are your insurance policies that you're looking at and what are the new benefits like very 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 daily things that that we're discussing among ourselves and it's been extremely useful for all of us and we meet once a year uh, we're trying to do like twice a year but it's hard these are all founders that are busy but these are Food 52 CB Insights um well and good a lot of like health and um, stock twits mm -hmm. um, tons of these people are on it and mm -hmm. these are all either founders or like top executives yeah of these companies well i i do actually try to shy away from the where's it all going questions you know like uh every other podcast does those sorts yes. of interviews but I would like to end by asking you about, I really loved your post about the end of scale. Yeah, that, that got a little bit of fire. Did you want to, can you talk about that a little bit and, and, and what the point is that you're making? Yeah, I, I think that it's a bombastic headline, obviously. Um, you have to, to break through it a, a little bit. Um, I think that when people talk about scale, they say scale for scale's sake. You cannot say scale without saying scale for scale's sake, especially for companies that, like you look at. I remember the 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 lesson in what happened with Dig. You remember mm -hmm. yeah, back sure. in the days, Dig was big. Yeah. Dig was amazing when it was just focused on tech. When it raised money and decided it was going to be Dig for everything, uh -huh. was the start of its downfall. I remember saying somewhere that or writing on paid content maybe that this is going to be the downfall of Dig because it's just being every... 
from being a passionate community, it was just diluting its brand equity to everyone. Um, and that lesson is sort of stuck in my head for whatever reason. And so, um, and I've seen that repeat in different companies over and over again. Um, you know, Refine You 29, mm-hmm. fashion, now mm-hmm. it's everything. Mm-hmm. Um, Glam, which was an ad tech company that was just focused on, well, just focused on women is actually not just, it's a big vertical, but now they were everything for everybody. Mm-hmm. Now nobody, I don't know what they're called now. I think they're yeah, called something yeah, else. Yeah. Um, so diluting your focus in media and just becoming another part of the stream. Mm-hmm. I think that's, in, and, I, and I write in this post, um, people assume, like it's, uh, you know, you, it's like there's a analogy and I don't, I'm not very good at analogies in general. Um, ex- except that's a, I have a lot of nudging in my head. I'm very bad at at uh, verbalizing yeah. analogies. Um, but like, there's somebody walking down the street, and like people s- on the sidewalks shouting, "Look at me! Look at me! Look at me! Look at me!" That person walking down the street is the is the consumer, the reader, and everybody's shouting at them, mm-hmm. "Look at me! Look at me! Look at me!" That's what the world of media is today. Yeah. In the feed, everybody's shouting at you, "Look at me! Look at me! Look at me!" Uh, versus a direct relationship to your consumer, to your reader, to your user, daily. Uh, that people, and I, I wrote this very long article at the end, at the start of Jan, on how we got off the VC addiction for Skipped. It's a whole different story. But um, in it, I said, for us, scale means being a big part of the lives of our users. Uh, that's what scale means to us. Scale doesn't mean traffic size or our reach. It means us being a big, meaningful part of daily lives of our users, professional in this case, professional lives of users. I think that with a little bit of this media, I'm not saying it's a bubble burst. I've been calling it the media cleansing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a necessary correction in the market where too much money has been pumped into venture world in general, media as, as specifically, uh, and we're now beginning to see the effects of it, which is um, people moving into every other topic and you know I, I I have three different companies in my head which I cannot name which will announce something I I don't know this from any reporting mm-hmm. but I just know this from knowing the, the market that will announce some sort of cleansing in the next month or two months mm-hmm. it's guaranteed mm-hmm. and it's as a result of just taking out too much money I've heard time and again in the last eight nine months that they're, like what happened with Mashable, mm-hmm. which is they raised money and they had to lay off and focus on profitability. We went through this journey start of 2014 with Skipped. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad I was like a, a year and a half ahead of going through this journey, which is we were chasing scale initially as well. I mean, scale, not giant scale, but right. like scale in our world. Yeah. Uh, we were doing slideshows and like doing all kinds of stuff. Let's, let's start a video arm. Let, yeah. Yeah. And so... We were unable to raise our Series A. We did. We first gift we've raised, and this is a public story. Um, we raised two and a half million seed, and I was out raising Series A. I was unable to raise Series A, which was a very humbling moment in my life. And so that led us to pull back on on churn. Mm-hmm. And my journey from summer of twenty fourteen to really now, two year now, is essentially um, doing more with less. Essentially that. Sorry, doing less with more, what am I saying? Meaning pulling back on churn Mm -hmm. and going deeper into things. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, 
focusing on what we do well. Like I wanted to create, Skift was going to be a media and a data company. Turns out I didn't know, I, have, I had no idea how to create a data company. Neither did I have the money. What I knew was media. So I think that you will, the long answer to your question, which is where are we today? I, I, didn't, I didn't ask that. I specifically said I didn't want to ask that. Okay. But, go, but go on. I think that there's a realization that creating, this is not just in, in media, this is real tech media together, yeah. venture-backed ecosystem, that real businesses need to be created, maybe scale isn't everything. There's going to be breakout players, Uber in mm-hmm. transportation, maybe BuzzFeed in media. That will need that will be those breakout companies that will be in its own orbit. Vice maybe as well, um, but for others, it will have to be focused on creating real meaningful things. And uh, I think um, if anything, the story that my story is essentially a story of saying there's another way. Mm-hmm. Like that's been my, if you want to summarize my life, professional life, in, in one sentence, it's that guess what there's another way mm-hmm. and that's if if anybody wants to learn something from me that'd be the one sentence i would say i i find it interesting that in a way what you're saying when you say um create real value for your audience it's that idea that you learned all the way back with paid content where if they're waking up every morning and they're coming to you before they say hi to their wife that's that real personal value really I mean, like people changing their business strategy like the biggest of the companies changing their business strategy as a result of what they're reading on skift that's huge right. for travel, which is the world's largest industry. Mm-hmm. Like this is the level of fanaticism people have for, like CEOs and CMOs in travel have for Skift, is way beyond just a relationship. Hey, this is an email, a publication, publication that comes. It's it's part of their daily lives. Mm-hmm. It's what they're basing their companies on. Actual actionable intelligence. Actionable intelligence and our worldview of travel, because we are showing them. A different way of looking at the world of travel as well. I mean, that's sort of what what Skift is, and so that's been gratifying. Um, and uh, I have become a huge believer in building long term companies. Like you, I tell when we hire people, we tell if you want to build a long term career, here's work with us. Not that I'm expecting them to stay with us for a long time. For, for their whole life, but that we will get the best work ever out of you as an employee that will be, you will be set for life. I think that's kind of the, the dream that we sell when we hire people. Mm-hmm. And that's resonating. Uh, is like long-term company, long-term investment into people, everything long-term. And that's, you know, such a freaking novel idea today <laughs> at this point in, in an age where, like, you know, yeah. people, companies are created, become big and they get, get, get sold 18 months later for $18 billion, whatever WhatsApp was sold for. Right, right. Well, Rafat, you're so, you're so good at this and so interesting that we could be here all night, so I should probably let you go, but I, I want to thank you so much. Um, well, thank you for letting me tell uh, and having the discussion. I may have talked No, no, I'm telling you, you're good at it, and, and, and it's been amazing, and, and thank you for taking the time. Thank you for inviting me. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast... Please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, 
the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.